go west, young man. That's the phrase you always hear, right? But what you never hear is, go west, young woman. And yet, as it turns out, the west was a surprisingly promising place for women. And not just for ladies of the night, either, but for all kinds of women. See, as we heard last time, the Wild West was one in the same with the Victorian world, and as much as cowboys struggled to gain respect within traditional Victorian ideals, women struggled even more. I mean, sure, women were celebrated as paragons of virtue, but to avoid falling off that very high pedestal, you basically had to have the balance of a gymnast. I mean, you had to maintain a pristine reputation, unsullied by divorce, any whiff of sexuality, or even public activity of any kind. You had to be a perfect domestic angel, essentially. And let us not forget, you also pretty much had to be white. But in the West, where women were rare and their traditional skills were in high demand, women found considerably more freedom. For example, unlike in the East, women could own their own property, with or without a husband, mind you. They could divorce more easily. They could live post-divorce without a ruined reputation. They could go into business for themselves. They could claim a homestead as a single woman all on her lonesome. And territories in the West were even the first to pass women's suffrage. But wait, 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 wait. Hold on there, partner. Are you telling me that the West was some kind of feminist fairy tale or something? Well, no, it was no fairy tale. It was a tough place for anyone to live, but especially for women. It was full of misogyny and violence. And those who were not white Anglo-Saxon had a rougher time still. And yet, believe it or not, in this respect, the Wild West was surprisingly progressive for its day. It's an upside-down, topsy-turvy view compared to the image that you may have received from the movies, but nevertheless, it's true. Okay, so what was life like in the Wild West for women? And how did it get to be as progressive as it was? That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. <laughs> The History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our patron Shannon for making this episode possible. Folks, this is part two of our series Sex in the Wild West, and today we're focusing on women and the surprisingly forward-looking atmosphere in the western territories of the United States. Now, in the series Deadwood, you might have heard of it, there's a woman, I won't say who for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, there's a woman who goes into business for herself and even opens a bank, which was pretty much unheard of in the 19th century back east. Similarly, in the much less famous but also excellent series Godless, a woman runs a ranch on her own. Now both of these very modern westerns depict strong female characters venturing into traditionally male occupations, and sure, that's great cinema fit for our sensibilities today, but it's not historically accurate. Or is it? As it turns out, 
it just might be the case that these modern so-called revisionist westerns are actually more true to history than you might think. The traditional image of women in the West, both from the movies and from academia, is of the sunbonneted helpmate, bravely but often begrudgingly following a male West into the frontier. They were the gentle tamers, in the words of 20th century scholar D. Brown, who was one of the first to recognize the contributions of women to the West at all. However, more recent scholarship, starting in the 80s and continuing into the 21st century, has unearthed the ways in which this image doesn't even come close to depicting the variety of experience of Western women, much less the ways in which they pushed forward the frontier not only of settlement, but of gender as well. Because although the Trek West was led by men in terms of sheer numbers, it was not always led by men on an individual basis. Many women went on their own or with mothers or sisters. And even if they did make the long wagon journey with men, they encountered a situation along the trail where whatever had to be done had to be done by whoever was available, and so gender roles began to break down rather quickly as women helped out with male chores and men helped out with female chores. And when they arrived at their destination in the West, they found that they were no longer the same people who had left the rigidly gendered East. See, despite the largely male-dominated image of the West that we get from the movies, it was actually a place for women too. And not just as sunbonneted drudges following behind some man. The West was in fact a place where women kicked over the traces. Kick over the traces. To throw off normal restraints or routine as a rowdy horse might kick or jump over the traces hitching it to a wagon. That's authentic frontier lingo there for you. I've got plenty more of that coming for you, and I'll continue to point it out as we go along in this series. Okay, so let's begin. First off, pop quiz. When did women win the vote nationally in the U.S.? Anyone? Anyone? It was 1919, just after World War I. In our earlier series, Sex in the Third Reich, we saw that Germany beat that by one year in 1918, and most European nations in the world also passed women's suffrage around that time or a little earlier. But the United States was 1919. Okay, now, next, when did women win the vote in the Western territories of the U.S.? Anyone? Anyone? Well, the first to pass full women's suffrage was the territory of Wyoming, which did so right after it first formed as a territory, granting the vote to women all the way back in 1869. That's exactly 50 years before national suffrage in the U.S. In other words, for pretty much the entire heyday of the cowboy, from the end of the Civil War in 1865 to the closing of the frontier in 1890, the time span of pretty much all those Western movies that you have ever seen, women in Wyoming territory could head to the polls right alongside everyone else. And she could run for public office, too. Now, Utah Territory followed closely a year later, in 1870. Meanwhile, suffrage bills came within a hair's breadth of passing in Washington, Nebraska, Dakota, Kansas, Oregon, and California. There was something in the air in the western states and territories at this time. 
Now, to be clear, this comes with a whole lot of asterisks, the biggest of which was that this suffrage movement really only had white women in mind. I mean, it applied to all women technically. Full suffrage in Wyoming territory did extend also to women of color, and some did actually vote in the ensuing election of 1870. But there was a bit of a hair in the butter. Hair in the butter, a delicate situation. See, as Wyoming Supreme Court Justice John Kingman keenly recalls in the city of Cheyenne, quote, Carriages were employed by the candidates to bring ladies to the polls. At the hotel were a number of colored girls employed as servants. After a while, a carriage drove up with four of these colored girls in it. They were helped out, and as they went up to the polls, the crowd quietly parted, they voted, and returned to the carriage without a word said. Then I breathed freely. I knew that all was safe. Now, as you can clearly hear in those words, the situation there kind of boiled with tension. It wasn't that these were women. I mean, candidates were literally drawing in women by the carriage load, right? Rather, it was specifically that these women were black. Kingman clearly feared that violence would erupt when they voted. This was, after all, only five years after the Civil War and the end of slavery, and, as Kingman himself notes, Wyoming was full of southern men and copperheads. Copperheads are northerners who supported secession and came to the territories to avoid being drafted into the Union Army during the Civil War. So, suffice to say, Election Day could easily have turned into Lynching Day. Fortunately, it didn't. Justice Kingman let out a sigh of relief as the event passed without note, but clearly it was uncertain, to say the least. That women of color would also be allowed to vote was not assumed. And you know, seen in that light, just imagine the courage that it must have taken for those four black women to step out of that carriage and brave the ballot box on that tense Wyoming day. I mean, I'm sure they knew just as much as the justice did how much danger that they were in. And yet they did it anyway. I mean, those women had grit. Grit. Unyielding courage, stamina, and fortitude. But grit wasn't always enough. Even after it became clear that black women could, in fact, vote legally under the new law, many still were not able to do so in practicality due to widespread voter suppression. And moreover, some women suffragists, before and after actually campaigned an explicitly white supremacist agenda, arguing that the vote for women would increase the white voter base. For example, one broadside poster from 1912, so Twilight of the Cowboys, but still right in there, this broadside poster reads, Votes for women will improve the electorate, and goes on to say, It will more than double the native white majority. And it then provides male and female population figures comparing, quote, foreign-born, quote, Negro, and, quote, native white populations. The pamphlet shows with mathematical precision how suffrage would increase the white vote tally over and against blacks and immigrants. So that's pretty darn clear. Some campaigned for women's suffrage using explicitly white supremacist arguments. Now, Let's talk about that poster's language, that phrase, native white, because it's interesting from our perspective today, the first thing that probably comes to mind when you hear the word native is Native Americans. But if you said Native American to whoever composed this poster, they would have understood you to mean 
a white person who was not a recent immigrant. Meanwhile, actual Native Americans, i.e. American Indians, are nowhere to be found represented in this poster. They're not even an afterthought here. And yet, as we all know, this was all happening on lands which had been stolen from them. So, in short, when we talk about the Western territories being progressive for women, there are some pretty big asterisks on that statement. Nevertheless, the achievement of women's suffrage in Wyoming Territory and then in Utah, and its near achievement all across the West, was still a landmark for women's rights. And it happened right there in that least expected of places, the Wild West. Okay, so how were women able to win the vote so early in the West? How did this happen, right? Well, there were several reasons. The first was pure political process. See, territories only required a majority vote and the governor's signature, but states required a full-on constitutional amendment which demanded a 60% vote in both houses, governor's approval, and approval of the people in a special election. So that made it a lot easier to pass in terms of pure voting mechanics. But there were other, much more interesting reasons as well, the most important of which was quite simple. See, on the frontier, women were rare, and that meant their traditional skills were in demand. This is how rare women were on the frontier. In 1870, in Oregon, the ratio of males to females was 2 to 1. In Arizona, the ratio was 4 to 1. In Nevada, 5 to 1. Idaho and Montana, 8 to 1. Other places could be even higher, especially in the early days. In Colorado in 1860, for example, the first year of the gold rush, the ratio of males to females shot to a whopping 34 to 1. Now, such numbers did level off quickly with time, but in Wyoming, on the eve of passing women's suffrage, the ratio there was still six men for every woman. So women on the frontier, they were rare, and that made them in demand. And I don't just mean as sexual objects. They were in demand also because they had valuable skills, skills that may not have been appreciated until they were gone, but once they were, boy, were they missed. Cooking, cleaning, sewing, gardening, child-rearing, all those traditionally female-coded skills. These were all things that men would line up for. So on the frontier, when a woman brew a strong cup of Arbuckles, Arbuckles, coffee, named after the popular brand, or cooked a batch of bear signs or splatter dabs, bear signs, donuts, splatter dabs, pancakes, flapjacks. Well, you knew darn well that people would come from miles around and pay top dollar. In short, women were in demand, and that empowered them to make demands. And that is how women managed to win the vote in a place like Wyoming. And the situation was similar all over the West. Suffrage bills came within a hair's breadth of passing all over the frontier. Wyoming just happened to be one of two places where it actually did pass. The other place was Utah. 
and the situation there was actually a little bit different in an interesting way. See, unlike in most other places in the West, the sex ratio in Utah Territory was actually pretty much one-to-one -one due to the settlement of Mormon families in whole. So it wasn't scarcity in this case that led to women's progress, it was actually Mormon culture that led to progress for women in some surprising ways. Now I know that might sound like an oxymoron to some. I mean, the most widespread stereotype of Mormons is that they were polygamous, which may not sound very progressive. Now, to be clear, the vast majority of Mormon churches ban polygamy today, and even in the 19th century, only about 20 to 30% of families practiced it. Nevertheless, it was a historical practice, and it did have certain effects that contributed to the territory's receptivity to women's suffrage. Historian Winifred Gallagher describes the situation. Mormon women lived within the patriarchal structure, but even before the rights movement, they enjoyed what amounted to divorce on demand and certain property entitlements. Men obliged to build the new Jerusalem mandated by God needed capable partners who could function independently and make decisions. Many had to support themselves and their children during their husbands' frequent absences on church business or visits to other sometimes distant families. Accordingly, Mormon girls were raised to be self-sufficient and resourceful rather than dependent on men. And Gallagher goes on to note the suffragist activities of Mormon women, including one Emmeline Woodward Harris Whitney Wells, an influential journalist in Salt Lake City, who even ran for public office, and wrote, All honor and reverence to good men, but they and their attentions are not the only sources of happiness on earth, and need not fill up every thought of woman. So there you go. Whatever else you might say about the historical practice of Mormon polygamy, it does seem to have contributed to the early victory of suffrage for women in Utah Territory. So, in short, women in the West were relatively empowered compared to back East. In the case of Utah, that came from cultural and religious sources, whereas in Wyoming and across most of the rest of the West, it was due to the scarcity of women. Women were in demand, and that gave them power and they used that power to expand beyond the strict walled garden of Victorian traditionally female-coded affairs. So women won the vote early. That's huge. But that wasn't all. That wasn't all that made the West a place for women, not by a long shot. So what about the rest of women's experience? How else did the progressive mood of the frontier impact their day-to-day -day lives? Well, we're going to find out in just a moment, but first... We'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. The Black Scourge ravaged Europe, and the great cities were destroyed. Survivors flooded north where Viking longboats ferried them to the New World. As the trail of refugees grew, so too did the ships, and soon massive multi-decked Viking galleys trolled the wine-dark seas, building medieval cities along every coast. I'm Jordan Harbour. Come join me at the Twilight Histories podcast, where you will experience exotic worlds like this one, worlds that never existed in our timeline. An Aztec empire built by Spanish steel, a Carthaginian colony on Mars, and Egypt that never fell. Listen with the lights off and allow the images to take you away. Listen to the Twilight Histories podcast. 
And now, the history of sex presents this. Now, you can party with the wildest girls ever caught on tintype photography. Girls Gone Wild West. These are not hired actors or paid performers. We captured real girls divorcing, driving oxen, performing cattle work, claiming homesteads, and opening businesses. They're uninhibited, uncensored, and unrepentant. What happens when girls go on spring break in Wyoming? They cast ballots. Watch them tick the bubble for their favorite candidates. Tick it off! These photographs are not sold in stores and can't be shown in respectable company back east. Oh my. Even if you could get to the Western Territories, you'd never find all this action for only 19.95 cents. Call 1-800-249-WEST at your local telegraph office. Unleash Girls Gone Wild West and watch what good girls do when they go wild. They vote! Giddy up, darling. Woo! All right, we're back. So with the added respect gained from being in demand, women found themselves able to push the boundaries into more male-coded frontiers. For example, Clara Shortridge Foltz became the West Coast's first female attorney. Laura DeForce Gordon became California's second female attorney and first female newspaper publisher. Esther Hobart Morris of Wyoming became the nation's first female judge. Oregonian Bethenia Owens Adair became a doctor. Susan LaFleche of the Omaha tribe became the nation's first Native American doctor. Martha Maxwell became a renowned hunter, naturalist, and taxonomist. And then, of course, there were also women like Annie Oakley, who achieved international fame as a crack-shot sharpshooter. Now, these women pushed the boundaries of what it meant to be women. But it wasn't only these intrepid pioneers who benefited from the progressive attitude of the frontier. The average Jane Doe also saw her lot improve. For one thing, compared to the East, women were much more free to divorce. See, in the East, a woman might find her reputation ruined for life from such a scandal, regardless of the reason for divorce. But in the West, where wives were hard to come by, well, men couldn't afford to be choosy. Well, women, they could. And so, if they found themselves in a poor match, they had the power to leave. Now, as in the East, they did still need a reason for divorce, like adultery, desertion, or extreme physical abuse. But many Western courts were actually more lenient on this point. Gallagher writes, Many courts tacitly acknowledged that the real issue was often incompatibility and added mental cruelty to the list. Judges also frequently awarded the custody of children to mothers rather than fathers, which was rare back east. California allowed divorce in 1850 and soon granted the most decrees of any state in America. By the next decade, the Dakotas, along with Utah, were dubbed divorce mills. So women in the West had more power to divorce, more legal means to do so, and suffered less stigma for doing it. Okay, that is definitely an impact on the day-to-day -day life of your average Jane Doe. There is more. For another thing, women were more able to attend college in the West. See, the Morrill Land Grant Act of 1862 created nearly 100 tuition-free co-ed colleges, two-thirds of which 
were in the West. In addition, women could also establish a homestead in their own name, with or without a husband. The Homestead Act, also in 1862, allowed homesteaders to claim 160 acres of quote-unquote free land, actually Native American land, but we'll leave that for now. And the only provision was that they had to live on it for a number of years and improve the property in a process called proving up, which women with their traditional domestic skills often proved better able to successfully achieve than men. Between 1863 and 1889, in Minnesota alone, some 2,400 female heads of household homesteaded in their own name. Finally, women in the West could also own their own property. It didn't matter if they had a husband or not, their own stuff was their own stuff. Now, not only did this grant women greater independence, but it also meant that they could be proprietors of their own businesses. And this was radical. See, in the East, especially in the South, any whiff of public activity, including business, might tarnish a respectable lady's reputation. But in the West, necessity allowed much more leeway. And you remember that list of highly in-demand, traditionally female skills? Well, it doesn't take a genius to recognize the business opportunity presented by that. As a result, many women got quite flush. Flush, prosperous, rich. As Gallagher puts it, Seizing an economic opportunity available to them nowhere else, some ambitious women, most from working classes, rushed to supply the miners with domestic skills that husbands got for free. Now, a vivid example of such entrepreneurial adventure can be found in the story of Luzena Stanley Wilson. In 1849, Wilson moved to California with her husband for the gold rush. And in the town where they arrived, she found that she was only one of three women in a town of 6,000. <laughs> one of three women in a town of 6,000. You can imagine how that turned out. Gallagher relates, One morning, a man paid her $5 for a breakfast, about $168 today. And she noted that if I had asked $10, he would have paid it. So sensing this opportunity, Wilson resolved to open a boarding house and brought her husband in as a partner. Note the word, partner. It was not automatic that he would be involved. They were voluntary business partners. They sold their oxen and with the proceeds bought a boarding house. And Wilson's reaction upon her first visit to this shabby place, well, it's priceless. Check it out. Several miners drank at a bar. One lonely man wept over a letter. Some invalids slept. And from one bed stared the white face of a corpse, a silent, unheeded witness to the acquired insensibility of the early settlers. Yikes. <laughs> However, undaunted, Wilson cleaned the place up, named it the El Dorado, and soon was raking in the dinero. Dinero. Money. And pretty soon she had up to 200 boarders, each paying $25 a week, which comes out to $800 a piece in today's currency. In the end, however, she came a cropper. Come a cropper to come to ruin. Fire destroyed the El Dorado, leaving her broke and homeless. She did land on her feet, however. Traveling through the fertile Sacramento Valley, they paused at a pleasant spot near Vacaville, where Wilson soon set up shop beneath an oak tree, posted with a sign reading Wilson's Hotel. The first customers of yet another successful female enterprise dined atop stumps and slept beside hay bales. 
Now, many other women followed Wilson's example, each to her own talents. Mary Ballou, for example, brewed coffee that was, quote, strong enough for any man to walk on who had faith as Peter had. <laughs> I don't, I'm not really sure what that means, but it does sound good. I would pay four bucks for that cup of coffee. So in short, women found a surprisingly progressive atmosphere in the West where their relative scarcity placed their traditional skills in high demand, resulting in political, legal, and material improvements, including business opportunities. Now, these improvements were enjoyed mainly by white women. There were plenty of other women in the West, too. So that is the last thing that I want to talk about today. What was the Wild West like for women of color? Women saw substantial improvements in the West, but then again there were those pesky asterisks that we mentioned before. What about women of color? What about black women, Asian women, or Native American women? Did they enjoy similar improvements in their day-to-day -day lives? Were they also able to vote, to divorce more easily, own property, homestead in their own name, or own businesses? Well, on the one hand, black and Asian women were also scarce in the West, and so you might wonder if they didn't also see at least some benefit, albeit perhaps manifesting in different ways within their own cultures. And technically, the laws underlying many of these privileges we've been talking about, such as suffrage and the Homestead Act, did not specifically deny race. I mean, we saw earlier how black women were in fact allowed to vote in Wyoming, held breaths notwithstanding. However, I could not turn up any research that positively showed an improvement for women of color in this time period. I mean, first off, Native American women not being citizens until 1924 would have enjoyed few, if any, of the legal privileges mentioned. Now, before the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, there were pathways to citizenship for Native Americans set up under various acts, but they usually involved giving up the tribal way of life in one way or another, and going through the same naturalization process as an immigrant coming in through Ellis Island. The situation was basically the vast majority of Native American women were legally treated as aliens in their own land, and likely saw few of the benefits that we've been talking about. Meanwhile, for blacks and Asians, the mood was actually trending not so much in a progressive direction as a regressive one at this time. See, at the very same time that bills for women's suffrage were being put before western states and territories, so too were laws against miscegenation, that is, intermarriage between races, which usually specifically called out blacks and Asians as forbidden from marrying whites. And while the suffrage bills struggled to pass, barely if at all, these miscegenation laws breezed through with little objection. And now, I realize that that's not exactly in the same category as most of the privilege that we've been talking about, but it does show a general hardening of racial attitudes during this period. And so, I struggle to believe that women of color would have shared much in the way of the improvements that we've been talking about. In fact, I suspect rather the opposite. Nevertheless, there were success stories for women of color during this period. 
They were fewer and farther between, but they were there. For example, there was Colorado's Clara Brown, a black laundress who became an investor, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Mary Ellen Pleasant, also black, was an abolitionist with her own business empire. There was Sing Choi, the unofficial leader of Tombstone's Chinese community in the 1880s, who supplied labor and opened laundries, restaurants, gambling halls, opium dens, and a general store. We already heard mention of Susan LaFleche, the Omaha tribeswoman who became the nation's first Native American doctor. There was also Zitkala Shaw, a Dakota writer, rights activist, and musician. And there was Nampeyo, a Hopi potter who led a renaissance of Hopi pottery and is still considered one of the most influential Hopi artists even today. Now, the successes of these women of color may have been in spite of, rather than because of, the mood of the day, but they were successes nonetheless, and they deserve credit all the more for that reason. So we have a bit of a split story between white women and women of color, but then there were those who fell somewhere in between. For example, Mexican-American women at this time were not not considered white, but they were not quite fully white yet at this time either. See, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the Mexican-American War and ceded to the U.S. much of what is now the Southwest, guaranteed Mexican citizenship without reference to race. Thus, with this precedent, they managed to avoid the kind of miscegenation laws that oppressed blacks and Asians and sometimes Native Americans. So legally speaking, they were white. However, their whiteness continued to be questioned in actual practice. For example, as historian Rachel F. Moran writes, Whatever the law, registrars often informally denied marriage licenses to Mexicans who looked too dark to marry a white person. And moreover, the Rodriguez case in 1897 did uphold the citizenship rights of Mexican-Americans as whites legally, but at the same time, for some reason, remarked that they were probably not white according to anthropology. Go figure. Thus, Mexican-American women found themselves in a sort of in-between state, you know, a sort of racial no-woman's land. And correspondingly, they may have enjoyed some of the privileges that we've discussed today, but probably not all or not fully. Nevertheless, there are success stories there too, such as entrepreneur and casino owner Doña Gertrudes Barcelo, whom Gallagher calls Santa Fe's most powerful woman. Thus, the story of women of color and women who were white but perhaps not quite fully white according to the people of the time was generally one of struggle. The mood was not trending in their favor, but some did still manage to make a go of it. And when they did, well, you can bet that they waked snakes. Wake snakes to cause a fuss, to raise a ruckus. Now that leaves this episode on a bit of a bittersweet note as we prepare to ride off into the sunset here. The Wild West was a surprisingly progressive place, but with asterisks. It saw substantial improvements, but the realization of those improvements may have depended on the color of one's skin. It was a place for women, but not necessarily for all women. It just goes to show that progressive in one way does not necessarily equal progressive in another. And you know, just because the West was not exceptional in every way, well, that doesn't erase the fact that it was exceptional 
in the ways that we've mainly been talking about today, women did win suffrage early, and many could divorce more easily, own property, claim a homestead, and open a business. It was not like that back in the East. And so, by way of conclusion here, I can say, however bittersweetly, that the frontier had a far richer relationship to women than I ever expected. The sun that blazed over the covered wagons and the stagecoaches and railway lines cast its light not only on men, but also on women. Women, too, cast long shadows in the Wild West. Folks, when I first started researching this topic, I figured our episode on the typical Jane Doe of the West would be, frankly, a little bland. See, I too had been taken in by the sunbonneted helpmate stereotype. I mean, sure, I'd seen modern westerns with strong female characters, like Deadwood, like Godless, but I just assumed that that was modern sensibilities reflected in modern cinema. I never dreamed that it was actually grounded in historical accuracy. But it is. As we've seen today... These modern, so-called revisionist westerns are actually sometimes more true to history than the typical John Wayne, Gary Cooper, or Clint Eastwood flick. The fact of the matter was that women were scarce on the frontier, and thus their skills were in demand, and being in demand, they had more power to make demands. Consequently, the Wild West became a more progressive place for women than you may have ever suspected. They could divorce more easily and with less stigma. They could homestead in their own name. They could own their own property. They could go into business for themselves. In Wyoming and Utah territories, they could vote. The West was a place for women, too. Now, on the other hand, that didn't mean that the West was a perfectly safe place for them, as we'll see next time in our episode on cross-dressing on the frontier. Many women actually felt unsafe traveling alone and cross-dressed as men in order to arrive unmolested at their destination. So no, it was no feminist fairy tale, but it was a place that was far more female-friendly than we are typically led to believe. And consequently, many answered that fateful call, Go West, young woman. Well, that's all I've got for you today, folks. I hope you learned something today. I certainly did. If you like what we're doing here on this show, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform, or you can pledge on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a plucky upstart suffragist braving the ballot box, or a pioneering entrepreneur challenging norms for that sweet cha-ching. Or whatever you want, I'll make you look awesome. I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash btnewberg. All right, folks, next time we are going to veer into the queer as we explore the surprisingly high number of cases of cross-dressing on the frontier. What was it like for those who dressed as men or as women contrary to social expectations? Why did so many of them do it? One reason, as we just heard, was for women to feel safe traveling, but there was a whole lot more than that going on, stuff that raises questions of identity, gender fluidity, and social rebellion. 
that's what I've got planned for next episode, if all goes well, fingers crossed. So you can look forward to that. All right, folks, I'll see you next time. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.